2: Follow The Global Story from the BBC, wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and I love all things tech. And this is the tech news episode for Thursday, January 28th, 2021. And you know, guys, I often start the news episodes with some heavy stuff. And today is no exception, except that this is more of a good news heavy story than a bad news one. So that's a nice change. Reuters reported on Wednesday, January 27th, so yesterday, if you're listening to this episode the day it comes out, that police agencies in the United States, Canada, and six European countries completed an international operation to bring down a malware botnet network called Emotet. Germany's federal police agency had named Emotet as, quote, the most dangerous malware globally, end quote, which is saying something considering some of the contenders that are out there. Emotet is a type of malware called a Trojan, which, like the Trojan horse of legend, serves as a delivery mechanism for some other type of code, typically malicious code. So Emotet is the nasty piece of software that creates the opportunity for other, potentially nastier pieces of software to infiltrate a system. So it could help deliver code that encrypts everything on a computer, which would lead you toward ransomware, or it could be used to allow hackers to install monitoring software to keep an eye on everything going on in a system, or even giving administrative-level access to various computers, and so on. The main way this malware spread was through email attachments, so it used the old tried-and-true phishing technique, which is still around for a reason. People still fall for it. It first appeared back in 2014, and it has gone through various cycles of activity and inactivity. In 2020, the Emotet activity on the internet dropped in February, but it surged again in July. Now, according to authorities in the Ukraine, Emotet was responsible for about $2.5 billion in damages globally. The police takedown included a raid on a physical location within the Ukraine in which hackers had servers that were doing a lot of the heavy lifting for, you know, maintaining and, and administering the botnet. The police released photos of bank cards and cash, which I find particularly wild, as I usually imagine most of the crime involving digital transfers of funds rather than, you know, the physical manifestation of money, but I guess my imagination is far too limited At the time I'm recording this, there were no reports about any arrests. That doesn't mean that arrests didn't happen. I just didn't have any news about them as I was recording this. Now, the takedown is certainly a disruption for this particular type of malware botnet operation, but we should keep in mind there are lots of other ones out there. There are hacker groups that are independent, and then there are some that are state-sponsored, but this is definitely good news that one of the more dangerous networks appears to be offline now. Next, I wanted to follow up on a story I talked about briefly involving GameStop and their stocks. Now, if you listen to recent news episodes, you heard me talk about GameStop and use that as a way to explain the process of short selling. That's where an investor borrows stock that doesn't belong to that investor, And then sells that stock for market price and then hope that the price of the stock falls so that the investor can then buy back those borrowed shares and pocket the difference. Because the investor is obligated to return the borrowed shares. The goal is for you to buy back those borrowed shares when they're cheaper and then you know, you get to keep whatever the difference was between the sell price and the buy price. Well, we knew that a subreddit called Wall Street Bets was driving the price of GameStop stock up after a company called Citron and another one called Melvin Capital had recommended that the stock be used as a short sell. And in fact, those companies were short selling GameStop stock. And they were anticipating that there was going to be a drop in stock price. Now, in my last piece on this, the price of GameStop stock... is so hard to say that, by the way. Anyway, that stock had climbed 70% in a day. It climbed another 130% after that. In fact, over the course of two weeks, the stock price has increased dramatically. And that definitely puts the squeeze on anyone who's trying to short sell the stock. Because... Now, buying back those borrowed shares will cost more money than the investor would get from selling them at the earlier market price. It means that when that price goes up, you lose money. If you were, quote-unquote, selling stock at $10, and then the stock goes to $20, and you have to buy back that stock, well, now you're paying twice as much, right? So, when stock prices go up, short selling becomes a loss for the investor. Now, some investors will double down. They will start short selling even harder. They will start selling more stock that they don't own with the hope that the new higher price of stock is going to take a turn and start dropping again. And thus they'll be able to cover their original short sell and perhaps make money in the long term by jumping on it again. But this activity of, of uh, buying and selling, it ends up pushing the stock price even further up so it becomes a vicious cycle that becomes known as a stock squeeze or a short squeeze, really. Well, back in uh, January 12th, GameStop stocks were selling at $19.95 per share. And I mentioned that they've increased dramatically. So what does that actually mean? Well, by January 27th, the stock price was at $350 per share. So now let's talk about market capitalization. Now, essentially, we take the number of shares that a company issues out and we multiply that number of shares by the share price to figure out what the market cap is. So for GameStop, as of the time I'm recording this, that market cap is at around $26 billion. That is bonkers. And you might ask, what has GameStop done to merit this jump in value? And the answer is, Nothing, really. This price inflation is due to a lot of perception and market activity among stockholders and was exacerbated when the short sellers were trying to buy up more stock or sell more stock, short sell more stock in an effort to make up for the losses they were already experiencing and the cycle was getting worse and worse. The stock market has actually halted trading on GameStop shares numerous times over the last week due to that high volatility in trading. That's a protective measure that's necessary because sometimes a really volatile stock can set off a kind of chain reaction in the market, and then you've got real chaos on your hands. And it's hard to see how this will all end well in the long run. It seems that eventually the market value for GameStop will have to readjust to better reflect the actual value of the company, and you would expect to see that the market share price fall as a result of that. And for those of you who who don't know what GameStop is in the first place, it's a video game retail company. As in, this is a company best known for having brick-and-mortar stores in the real world where you can go and buy video games and video game systems or even sell back your old copies of games to the GameStop. You would think that with the double whammy of the pandemic keeping most people at home and away from stores and the general rise of digital downloads as opposed to buying physical copies, It would mean that a company like GameStop wouldn't be seeing such a huge surge in stock market price, which is why I get the feeling that eventually this will all have to settle down. At least I hope it settles rather than crashes. Now, I should also stress, I am no market expert. Maybe this higher stock price will stick around and become stable. I doubt it, but... I fully admit this is not my area of expertise by a long shot, or else I would probably be a millionaire by now. Now, one of the big stories in the second half of 2020 was all about how former President Trump was pressuring Chinese company ByteDance to sell off its video streaming platform TikTok to an American company or companies or else face the apparently unenforceable threat that the service would be taken down in the United States. In fact, the reason that that sale has yet to take place is because the government really didn't follow through on the threats it was making. And I think think a lot of people over at ByteDance slash TikTok are just saying, well... Until they actually show us they really mean business, I guess we just keep doing what we're doing. Now, it remains to be seen what the Biden administration is going to do with regard to TikTok. It's possible they don't do anything at all. But meanwhile, over in India, things are definitely changing. The Indian government banned TikTok along with 58 other apps that are linked to China. Now that followed a military confrontation between India and China in the Galwan Valley back in the summer of 2020. And this week, ByteDance announced it was shutting down nearly all of its operations in India and laying off almost every employee there as well. One unnamed source told the website Intracker that as many as 1,800 people would lose their jobs and the company would would retain around maybe 250 employees in India. Some of the other apps affected by this ban include the mobile version of PlayerUnknown's Battlegrounds and the messaging service WeChat. In terrifying news, The Guardian reports that a U.S. government-appointed panel that included tech executives have made the recommendation that the United States pursue the development of military AI applications, including weapons powered by artificial intelligence. Leading that panel was Eric Schmidt, former CEO of Google, I guess it kind of is fitting to say that before he was CEO of Google, the company had kind of an unofficial motto of don't be evil, and that's not the motto anymore. I'm not saying the two are connected, but I'm not not saying the two are connected. Anyway, the logic of this, if you can call it that, is that the AI would, if designed properly, make fewer mistakes than people and, you know, that if designed properly is an enormous qualification there. I mean, if we have seen stories about how image recognition software can sometimes get things really wrong at times, that can go from embarrassing to outright offensive, you know, that kind of opens up your eyes. When that happens, you might be dealing with some harsh criticism and maybe, It might lead to a deeper discussion about topics like bias and transparency in artificial intelligence. But when we're talking military applications, it's obviously a more immediate issue of life-or-death type of scenarios. A former deputy secretary of defense named Robert Work said that, quote, "...it is a moral imperative to at least pursue this hypothesis." which might come as news to the hundreds of computer scientists who have previously spoken out about this very concept. In fact, there is a coalition of organizations that have signed documents calling for a ban on any uses of artificial intelligence with regard to warfare. Uh, It often gets reduced to no-killer robots, that kind of thing. The general concern is that applying AI to war will set off a new type of arms race, and that, further, any poorly made AI would be inherently dangerous. I mean, for that matter, a well-designed AI would be dangerous, because, I mean, that's its job. But it doesn't take much imagination to conjure up scenarios in which an AI system could make a call that a human being would never do, potentially setting off a catastrophic series of events. For example, just as a hypothesis, uh, if an AI decided that losing an entire city was an acceptable loss, it might move forward with that decision that could lead to the deaths of millions of people. Now, that's definitely on the bad end of the spectrum of possibilities. You could also argue it's possible that AI systems could prevail in situations where humans would fail, that an AI would act faster and with a better uh, result than humans would, and that lives would be saved in that example. But. It is a sobering thought, and in the end, the panel's recommendations, which will be finalized this spring, are not binding. It's not like whatever the panel finds, the government will immediately implement. And I expect we're going to see a lot more people speaking out against the idea. And we've chatted a bit about the trend of employees at tech companies forming unions to help create more leverage when negotiating with executive leadership. Uh, A lot of the news episodes have talked about Google's ongoing battle with the Alphabet Workers Union, or AWU, another thing that's very hard to say. But meanwhile, over at Amazon, we're seeing something play out that seems pretty familiar to anyone who was following the stories around the United States elections last year, Amazon workers planning to unionize a warehouse in Alabama have to vote on whether or not that happens. It's a, a, a union election, essentially. Now the people trying to form the union want to hold this vote through mail-in ballots. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic, so going to a physical location in order to cast your vote is frowned upon, generally speaking. But Amazon is pushing back on this. They're attempting to force the workers to participate in an in-person vote instead, perhaps due to the fact that it might be a way to discourage people from voting. I mean, that's that's my just hypothesizing. I don't have anything to back that up. It could be uh, other reasons. Amazon says that the reason is because uh, at least according to company representatives, that the mail-in process would take too long and that it would require too many resources. Uh, the National Labor Relations Board had previously said that employees should be allowed to vote by mail-in ballot. Amazon is appealing that decision. But assuming that the NLRB does not roll back that decision, they're should be a union election on February 8th for that warehouse. And if the workers do vote to unionize, it would mark the first Amazon warehouse in the United States to do that. I'm sure much of the tech sector has its eyes on Alabama, as between Amazon and Google, we could end up seeing a general move toward unionization in the tech space. I've got a lot more to cover in today's episode, but first let's take a quick break.
1: AT&T Fiber. Live like a gig Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit
0: slash hypergig for details. The Iranian government has issued a new social networking ban, this one targeting Signal, the messaging app. Now you might remember from recent episodes that Signal was having a bit of a growth spurt because people who had been using WhatsApp, which is owned by Facebook, had started to abandon WhatsApp, and they were turning to companies like Signal and Telegram instead. Well, Iran has already banned Telegram, and now Signal has followed suit. Uh, At the heart of the issue of people leaving WhatsApp is a recent announcement that Facebook would be gathering some metadata around how users were interacting with WhatsApp, and then putting that metadata to use over on Facebook proper and that raised a lot of privacy concerns that led to people kind of abandoning ship. Well, the Iranian government does doesn't seem too thrilled with Signal's product, which includes encrypted communication services. As such, the government dropped all Signal traffic on the the country's internal networks. And the government has also ordered Iranian app stores to drop signal from their virtual shelves. As I said, Telegram had already been banned in Iran. It's still in use in Iran, you just can't download it legally there, but there are people who are still using it in order to communicate. And in fact, when it comes to social apps that allow for messaging, the only two big ones that have not yet been banned by Iran are WhatsApp and Instagram, both of which are owned by Facebook. Maza Alamardani, a researcher with Article 19, speculates that this is probably because the Iranian government wants to put bans in place on social services before the services grow large enough for it to cause a noticeable uproar within the country. Uh, generally speaking, the Iranian government tends to not like it if people can talk without them being able to see what they're talking about, as the Iranian government, can fall a little bit on the paranoid side of the scale. NBC reports that a survey conducted by the National Association for Business Economics found that around 11% of respondents, which were mainly, you know, business leaders, expected to see a future in which all employees would return to offices. So in other words, 11% of those surveyed said, yeah, I think we're going to get to a point where everyone will be back in the office. Which means everybody else was saying, I'm not so sure about that. In fact, more than half of them said that they had already allowed for most or all staff to work remotely during the pandemic. And the general consensus is that, at least for the short term, most companies are seeing a future in which a significant percentage of the workforce will continue to work from home rather than commute to an office. Or they might move to a model in which people do come in for some days during the week and they work from home on other days, which is what I was doing before the pandemic switched me over to working from home almost entirely exclusively. I am not surprised by the results of this survey. I am curious how it will affect office spaces moving forward. Uh, For some companies, the office is a bit of prestige, right? It's something that can be used to impress partners and clients or potential hires. But an empty office doesn't give off quite the same vibe. And office space can be really expensive to maintain, particularly in fashionable parts of town. So I imagine some businesses will examine various scenarios, including some that see them downsizing the actual office space used in an effort to cut costs and conserve resources. You know, if they say, well, we've got 100 people who work out of this office, but only 20 of them come in, there's no reason why we need to support a space that can hold 100 people, let's scale back. Now, perhaps when enough people have been vaccinated, we'll start to see a change. So it may be that a lot of companies just say, let's just tread water until the vaccinations roll out. However, we need to remember that COVID is not going away, even after vaccinations, and that we're likely looking at a reality in which we will need to get vaccinated against COVID on a regular basis as the virus evolves. So in other words, there's no real resetting back to the normal that existed pre-COVID. Now, I don't know how this is all going to turn out, and I'm sure there will be a lot of negative consequences no matter how it unfolds. I also know that working from home isn't easy for everyone. Uh, In fact, on a personal note, it's changed me quite a bit. I used to be extremely extroverted, but now I actually get antsy if I happen to see a group of people. And even if I play a video game with a crowd in it, it makes me feel anxious, but that's enough about me. However, related to that story is what's going on over in the San Francisco Bay Area in California. Now, that has long been the epicenter of the tech world, or at least the tech world in the United States. So, you know, the U.S. slice of the tech world. Anyway, there are a few things to know about San Francisco in general. One, the real estate market there is truly outrageous. Like, Jim and the holograms, truly, truly, truly outrageous. For example, according to Town & Country, an empty lot measuring less than half an acre in size, meaning there's no house there, there's nothing there but an empty lot, that would set you back $5.4 million in Palo Alto, California. Now, Palo Alto is closer to San Jose than it is to San Francisco, but it is in the General Bay Area. The average rent in San Francisco for a one-bedroom apartment in the city itself is about $3,500 per month. Now, it's not the most expensive place in the world, but it is, you know, it's expensive to live there. And in a world where you can do your work from home and not commute to an office, it opens up the possibilities to, you know, live somewhere else, somewhere that isn't nearly as expensive. Axios published an article citing that nearly 90,000 households have left the San Francisco area recently. Now, some of that might be due to COVID directly, but a lot of it seems to be more about the cost of living versus the actual living conditions of the area. The tech sector attracts a lot of talent to it, and in general, the tech sector pays talent pretty well, and that drove up the real estate prices in the Bay Area over a couple of decades, and that also pushed people who were not fortunate to have a high-paying tech gig further out of the city. They had to commute much further to their jobs. So people working in industries that, you know, it wasn't like a high-paying developer job or something, might have to commute more than an hour each way because they couldn't afford to live in the same region where they worked. Now we're starting to see some of the tech companies themselves consider a move away from the Bay Area. And some of the places that companies are looking at include Miami, Florida and Austin, Texas. And it's really too early to see what the effect of all this is going to be. But it's certain that the disruptive sector known as tech is going to disrupt the Bay Area even more. Sticking with that Bay Area tech sector, let's talk a bit about Facebook, the media platform that is frequently part of the headlines. MSN reported on the amount of money that tech lobbyists spent in 2020 in the United States in an effort to influence politics here. Facebook, to no huge surprise, was the top spender in the lot of them. Now, according to the report, Facebook spent nearly $20 million on lobbying which represented an increase of nearly 18% over how much it spent in 2019. Google, by contrast, actually cut spending by 36% in 2020, down to a measly $7.5 million dollars. Overall, the top five tech companies, which also includes Apple, Amazon, and Microsoft, spent less on lobbying efforts in 2020 than they did in 2019. So Facebook is more of an exception in this case, since Facebook actually increased its spending. And out of those five companies I just mentioned, only Microsoft has recently been left out of antitrust investigations into whether or not those other companies represent a monopoly. Uh, The investigations concluded that, yeah, they kind of do. So, hey, Microsoft dodged a bullet on that one. But then let's remember that Microsoft itself has been the subject of antitrust investigations in the past. With the change in administrations here in the United States, it will be interesting to see how things progress on this front. Will various state and federal agencies push to break up some of these companies? Will the unionization efforts create complications for them? I have no clue, but I'll be keeping an eye out on this and, of course, reporting it to you guys. And another Facebook story, this one really a grim one, centers on material posted on Facebook that denies or distorts information about the Holocaust, like claiming that the Holocaust was a hoax, you know, that it never happened. Uh, The Anti-Defamation League has long pressured Facebook to take a more active role in banning posts that claim that the Holocaust was a hoax. And while the company had been urged by various groups and individuals to take action for years against that kind of material, it was only back in October of 2020 that the company actually said it was going to do it. In a blog post by Monica Bickert, who is the vice president of content policy at Facebook, the company laid out that the official hate speech policy for Facebook would now include any content that, quote, denies or distorts the Holocaust, end quote. But now, several months later in 2021, the ADL found that such content still pops up on Facebook and stays there, including Facebook groups dedicated to claiming that the Holocaust was a hoax. The organization thus awarded Facebook the grade of D, a failing grade, for its efforts to moderate such content. This kind of reinforces the idea that it is relatively easy to create an algorithm that's designed to boost content that shows signs of a lot of, air quotes, engagement. But it is a lot harder to find ways to moderate content to remove stuff like hate speech and misinformation. And that is a huge problem because, in the meantime, Facebook continues to be a misinformation distribution machine with incredible reach, and it was, you know, had a, had an economic incentive to be like that because, again, engagement means spending more time on the platform. Spending more time on the platform means being served more ads, and ads are how Facebook makes the vast majority of its revenue. So. It had an incentive to keep people there, and if people are staying there because of bad stuff, then there wasn't a whole lot of incentive to remove the bad stuff until public pressure reaches a point where it's undeniable. That's kind of where we are, and even now Facebook is still failing, at least according to the Anti-Defamation League. Well, we have a couple more stories for this episode, but before I get to that, let's take another quick break. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward
1: advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber. Live like a guggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit slash hypergig for details.
0: We're back, and some of you listeners might not be aware that back in the old days I wrote for a site called howstuffworks.com. That's how Tech Stuff got started as a podcast offshoot of the website, just like other shows like Stuff You Should Know and Stuff You Missed in History Class. If the show has the word stuff in the title, there's a chance, not a guarantee, but a chance that it branched off from how stuff works. Anyway, one of the articles I wrote for that site was about Project Loon, which was an effort from Google to create a network of high-altitude balloons carrying equipment that would provide internet connectivity as a sort of floating infrastructure. And it was an innovative approach to extending internet connectivity to remote areas that otherwise might go without. So for example, think of like a little town in Africa that's many, many, many miles away from the nearest big city. It might not have any internet connectivity and it would be incredibly difficult and expensive to build out the infrastructure to connect it to that big city. But if you float the internet above this this community, you could potentially provide it network connectivity. But we learned last week that Google is deflating the program, so to speak, ending the nine-year-long experiment. Now, the technology worked. The balloons could send down signals that communities could tap into. The high altitudes were above really gusty winds, so it was possible to maintain a connection to specific regions. You knew what was going to happen with the balloons, so if you just had enough coverage, then you could maintain that connectivity. But the company could not find a way to make the business work from a revenue perspective. So in other words, it was just costing too much to deploy and maintain than could be balanced out through revenue. And so we see the loons sink back down to Earth. And we're really seeing a different approach. Satellite services. Starlink, the project associated with Elon Musk, is such a service. The idea is to send up thousands of tiny satellites in a relatively low orbit that can act as kind of like a mesh networking system of their own. They would be at far too low an altitude to maintain a geosynchronous orbit that is an orbit where... The satellite maintains its spot relative to the position on the Earth. So since the satellites wouldn't be in the exact same spot in the sky, you need a lot of them in order to keep coverage consistent. Otherwise, you would lose your internet connection every time the satellite moved out of range, and then you would have to wait for it to go all the way around the planet and swing back overhead again. The Starlink service is aiming to have more than 40,000 satellites in orbit in order to provide a global internet connectivity service, which, hey, that's cool, but it does also represent another concern for scientists and astronauts who worry about stuff like space debris. And it also represents a potential issue for astronomers as reflections, both of light and potentially of radio waves, could make it harder to observe cosmological goings-on down here on Earth. So... Scientists also point out that the efforts to blanket the skies and satellites comes not from some sort of altruistic desire to supply internet to everybody. It's not like, look under your seat, you get an internet, and you get an internet. No, it's rather because these companies are viewing this as a potentially profitable business. So in other words, they are arguing that the media should not frame these efforts as being noble, necessarily. On the business side of things, there are skeptics who wonder if this approach will ever be profitable. Getting stuff into space is expensive, after all. And while it's useful to have persistent internet connectivity, there are some inherent downsides to using satellite technology. Uh, One big one is the problem with latency. Satellites, even those in a low orbit, are very far away. So it takes time for information to travel from the satellite to either the backbone of the internet or your end device. So you're kind of playing a game of phone tag. Let's say you've got a laptop that connects to a router that then connects up to the satellite link. So you are on a website, you click on a link. Your command goes out through your satellite dish, beams up to a satellite in orbit, which then has to relay that command back down on Earth at a receiving station, which then sends that signal out over the internet to its destination, you know, whatever website you were trying to visit, and then that whole response has to take the same journey but in reverse. And that tends to create a pretty noticeable delay between when you do something and when you see the results. So if companies can't make satellites work from a revenue perspective, they could go the same way that Project Loon went. But then we also have the added problem of a bunch of junk in low-Earth orbit. Next, Carl Pei made a name for himself as one of the co-founders for the Chinese consumer electronics company OnePlus back in 2013. And you might wonder what he's up to today. And the answer is nothing. That is, he founded nothing. I mean, he has founded a company that has the name Nothing. Nothing which makes me think that if you were an employee of that company, you would automatically have a fun, quirky thing to say at cocktail parties. You know, if we still had cocktail parties. It'd be the kind of joke that makes the other person kind of give a humorless smile in return before they silently wander off to see if maybe someone's laid out some new snacks on the table or something. And now you have an insight as to what it's like when I go to parties. Anyway, This company, nothing, will apparently be making something. Exactly what that something is is a mystery for now. We know that the product or products they plan to introduce perhaps this year fall into the general category of smart devices. But that's a pretty big category all on its own these days. I mean, it could be anything from a phone to a coffee maker or a doorbell or a toaster, who knows. But the philosophy of the company is one that probably feels familiar to science fiction fans. The idea that technology should be so advanced that it just kind of fades into the background of our environments and our reality. So using it should be just as intuitive as if it were nothing. Like it's right up there with breathing or blinking. By the way, don't think about breathing or blinking because then you're going to start doing it manually, and that will drive you crazy. We do know that the products will eventually be across numerous subcategories, and that the goal is to create a cohesive ecosystem within which these devices will operate. And we also know that the plan is to focus more on the hardware side of things than on the software side. But that's about all we know, which, you know, I guess ain't nothing. Virgin Hyperloop, which is just one of the companies trying to make Hyperloop or Hyperloop-like train systems a reality, released a concept video of what it might be like to go through a Hyperloop terminal, board a pod, which is you know the Hyperloop version of a train car, and travel to a destination. The video is about two and a half minutes long, and I have to admit, it's kinda cool. The video shows a scenario in which you're on a pod that gets up to more than 600 miles per hour as it travels through tunnels that have had nearly all the air removed from them. So that reduces air resistance to near zero. The video shows pods that have a sort of train, truck, or bogey on the top of the pods. So, you know, a, a, a structure that fits against a track. And the track is in the ceiling of the tunnel. Now that's a shift from the original Hyperloop design which suggested using air bearings, kind of like an air hockey table, but with the pod pushing out compressed air to float above the floor of the tunnel. However, that particular approach was found to be impractical. So Virgin Hyperloop is going with a more tried and true method of magnetic levitation. The whole thing looked really clean and sleek and futuristic, kind of like you're commuting inside of an Apple commercial or something. I'm still a little skeptical about Hyperloop. I'm not skeptical about the technology, mind you, but the practicality of building out the systems and operating them profitably. If traveling by Hyperloop costs the same or more as a plane ticket, that would be a big barrier. A study out of Ohio suggested that, at least for a system in the Midwest that would connect Chicago, Pittsburgh, and Columbus, the ticket prices might be about the same as it would cost if you were to drive from one location to another. And that would be pretty incredible, But building out Hyperloop infrastructure is going to be monumentally expensive and complicated, because it involves not just construction and technology, but also getting the various clearances from federal, state, and local governments to do it. But hey, just because it's not easy doesn't mean it's impossible. And my hope is that we will see Hyperloop systems connecting various regional cities, and that my skepticism ends up being misplaced. That's what I hope. I don't Feel like that's going to work out, but I'm hoping I'm wrong. Because I would personally love for there to be a Hyperloop connecting, say, Atlanta with Orlando, Florida. In the official Google blog, we saw a post about how COVID continues to dominate our world. That's not news. And that it can be really challenging to navigate all the various information sources to find out important information, like where you can actually go to get vaccinated. To that end, Google's CEO said that the company is focusing on providing timely and accurate information about vaccines catered to a person's location. And he wrote that within a few weeks, we should see that Google Maps in places like Arizona, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas will allow you to search for locations that offer the vaccine, and that the results will also have accompanying information about whether you would need a referral or an appointment. Maybe it's a drive through location, all that kind of stuff. Everything you need to know before you actually go. Now, as someone who had spent a lot of time researching this kind of information for my parents, who thankfully on their own were able to get appointments, I definitely have an appreciation for tools that make this easier. I mean, I do this stuff for a living, and even for me, it was a little too complicated. And finally, Twitter is giving a gift to the world of academia, an overdue gift, and that gift is free access to the full history of all public conversation on Twitter. Now, previously, researchers who wanted to use that information had to pay a premium to get that full record. Now, they can just apply to Twitter's research track for approval, and if they're accepted, they will be able to access the full history of all public tweets. Now, why would anyone want to do that? Well, they might want to research big trends and behaviors, you know, kind of track when certain things started to appear on Twitter. When did they peak? When did they settle off? How did that relate to things that were going in the real world? So a lot of things that might be related to sociology and psychology, that kind of stuff. And while it might sound scary to hear that suddenly someone's got access to everything that's ever been posted on Twitter, keep in mind that's not quite accurate It only covers public tweets, so any protected tweets are not included in this. And it should also remind us that when we post something to a public forum, the important thing to remember is that it is public. So, hey, if you're having second thoughts about tweeting that joke that you thought was funny, but other people might find it offensive, you know, maybe just don't do it. Now, that's advice for everyone, including myself. I've certainly been guilty of rattling off a tweet that at the time I was like, ha ha ha, aren't I so clever? And then like five minutes later, I realized, ooh, you know, sometimes it's better to be quiet or kind than clever. In fact, frequently it's better to be quiet or kind than clever. Something I'm working on personally as uh, being clever was a big part of my personal identity for a long time, but now I don't, I don't think it's necessarily the best trait for me. Anyway. That's enough self-reflection from Jonathan for this episode. If you guys have suggestions for topics that I should cover in episodes of Tech Stuff, you should reach out to me. The best place to do that is on Twitter. The handle for the show is H S W, and I will talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app,
2: WORK.
1: Zumo Play.